Tell Show. Welcome back. It's a Tuesday. Glad to have you back in. I'm Andrew Donaldson. It is February the 22nd. I uh, hope you enjoyed your President's Day yesterday. Uh, a lot of breaking news we're going to get to. We're going to jump right into the Russia stuff right off the bat. Also, uh, we're going to talk about a few other things. Truth Social, uh, the long-awaited Donald Trump social media platform is at. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, Kenneth Trump from Young Voices is going to be on the program today. Talk a little bit about education, uh, but obviously Russia's dominating news. We're going to jump into that. But first, one of the more important things, it's February 22nd. Uh, one of the listeners of Hertel's show's birthdays today, that would be my father. So happy birthday, dad. I love you very much. Appreciate your support. Enjoy your day. Um, but let's jump right into the issue. Uh, breaking news all day yesterday. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, who we understand that that title, he's a murderous thug dictator. He is uh, once again threatening the order of the world. This time in Ukraine, we've been talking about it for weeks, made a major announcement in a speech um, that he has considered the two regions in the Ukraine that they have been uh, provoking. They have been sending uh, forces into to provoke. They have been backing separatists and things like this in them for years. He is going to recognize them as independent states, and he's going to, this is a quote, send in peacekeepers of the Russian military to maintain peace. Now, we are all adults here, so let's just cut through the noise. Those are all lies. He covets Ukraine. He has coveted Ukraine all of his adult life for the most part, especially since the fall of the Soviet Union. This is an invasion by other means. They are going to take over territory from the sovereign country, Ukraine, because he doesn't think anybody's going to stop him. And he's probably right. Let's back up a little bit before we deal with the issue at hand. He's done this before. He did it in Georgia. He did it in Ukraine itself with Crimea. And now he's doing it here. I want to be very, very plain about what's going on here. And I'm going to use a very old literary tale to do it. Do you remember your reading of Moby Dick? Um, Moby Dick, of course, the white whale and crazed Captain Ahab had to get the white whale, had to get revenge. The white whale had wounded him. The white whale had scarred him, had taken from him important things. And a quote from Melville, one of the famous quotes in all of literature, when Ahab finally got his hands on the whale. And the quote is this. He plied upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by the whole of his race from Adam down. And then as if his chest had been a mortar, he burst his hot heart shell upon it. Melville was onto something here. When you have hatred in your heart and covetous in your heart, you try to weaponize it, and you can tend to become obsessive, which is the theme of Moby Dick. It's why it's such a classic piece of literature that gets used again and again in movies and films since then. Vladimir Putin has coveted and wanted and lusted after Ukraine. That's his and his thoughts and a lot of people with him that see uh, an imperialistic and world-dominating Russia. Ukraine is not Ukraine's. Ukraine is theirs. 
It was the breadbasket of the old Soviet Union. It has vast resources, as we've detailed in this program. They have vast agricultural resources that they need. As a leader of Russia with a faltering economy, he needed Ukraine as a puppet government at the best or as a part of Russia again at the real best, although that was probably never going to happen. And we need to understand how we got here. President Zelensky of Ukraine outed and beat out his hand-chosen puppet. He wants the Ukraine to be like Belarus, which is a country, separate country in name only, but a wholly owned subsidiary of Russia. And he's not getting it, and he's upset about it. But it's because of his hatred for years, harboring that Ukraine is really theirs, that led him to this. The West failed to stop him before. They didn't stop him in Georgia. They didn't stop him in Ukraine the first time in uh, the annexation of Crimea. And now he's going to invade Ukraine proper. Now, I don't think he's going to drive on Kiev. I think he's going to go into these uh, separatist regions, quote unquote, because that, a lot of that was drummed up as well, although there are Russian speaking peoples there. This is all about Vladimir Putin's pride, his ego, and his way of seeing the world that Ukraine belongs to Russia. We cannot apply just normal things that we sit in the West like foreign policy. We cannot apply normal things like rational thought because he thinks differently. He sees the world differently. He's also getting up in age. And there's been various reports about and speculation about his own health, talking about Vladimir Putin's here. He's at the place in life where he wants what he wants, and the West has never stopped him before. And he now sees his moment to get the crown jewel back that was taken from him. So, no, I don't think we can look at this just in political and geopolitical analysis and the way we talk about foreign policy, because this is very much Putin's white whale. He wants the Ukraine. He wants Ukraine back. And by God, this time he's going to get it by hook or crook. He has taken all the hatred since the fall of the Soviet Union, since Ukraine dared say it was its own country. And you can go on uh, Ordinary-Times.com and read his comments where he tells lies about how Ukraine was never a traditional, quote, Ukraine never had a tradition of genuine statehood. He talks over and over again that Ukraine really belongs to Russia. He says it in his own words. You can read it, Ordinary-Times.com, excerpts from Vladimir Putin's speech. But what all this really is, is he's taking all that hatred and all that lusting and all that covetedness for a world that used to be, and in some cases never was, that he wants to be again. And he's pouring it out of his heart. And like a mortar shell, or in this case, the T-tanks of the Russian military, He's bursting it upon Ukraine because he doesn't think the Western order is strong enough to stop it. And he's probably right. And the Ukrainian people are going to pay for it. In your analysis of what's going on, keep in mind that the country of Ukraine is now at the mercy of a dictator who hates them and who has been told over and over again by the West, we will not stop you from your murderous intentions. And here we are. There's no good answers coming forward. But let's be real clear-eyed about how we got here. We're going to talk more about Russia right after this. Lots more on the program. Kenneth Shrepp is going to be on Talk Education later on. We'll do more Hertel right after this. Now, welcome back to Hertel. Let's continue to talk about Russia. But let's take this from the domestic angle a little bit. The way the U.S. media 
is conducting themselves, especially our commentators, the social media realm, and some of our media platforms. Um, let me be super real clear about something here. Vladimir Putin's the bad guy here. Uh, the ruling oligarchs of Russia who run that country like a criminal enterprise that has the trappings of a state led by murderous thug dictator Vladimir Putin are completely in the wrong. They were 100% the aggressors here. Ukraine did not ask for this. They didn't do anything to threaten uh, Russia. They just exist and they are independent and they didn't go along with the long running plan to have them taken over by a puppet government. They didn't cooperate. So now here we are. Uh, we already talked about Vladimir Putin's angle on this a little bit, but there are people in the American press and in the Western press wider whose business model makes them think that it is good for them to side with Vladimir Putin here to spout the talking points that are coming out of the Kremlin and to excuse and enable and to go along with what Vladimir Putin is doing here. Vladimir Putin is the aggressor. The Ukraine did nothing wrong. Ukraine did nothing wrong here. That's the simple facts. And anybody that starts to get away from the simple black and white of those facts is trying to sell you something or they're a true believer for Vladimir Putin's cause. Either which way, they are now the bad guy. Once you side with evil and you agree with evil, you've got a problem. It should tell us something that there's a business model opportunity for people for whom culture and politics is a business model and the way they talk about it is a business model and they can uphold what Putin is doing as a good thing or at least something that is just as bad as what America would do. I will refer to our friend Nicholas Grossman, who's been on this program before. Um, he put it this way on Twitter. He said, spare a thought for the people of Ukraine who didn't ask for this and despite Russia's lies, didn't do something aggressive to invite it. This message is to me, too, since I've had my analysis hat on, but a lot of people are about to suffer from a war of choice, and that is awful. There's no such thing as a nice, clean war. In fact, by some estimates, there's already been 15 to 20,000 people die in these regions that Russia has now arbitrarily decided belong to Russia. Now, Russia is also acting, and I mean Vladimir Putin when I say Russia here, has also decided that all of Ukraine should belong to him, but we'll deal with that another matter. There's already been bloodshed here. The Ukrainian people are going to suffer greatly because of this. And by extension, in the long run, the Russian people continue to suffer under murder thug dictator Vladimir Putin. But some people in the American media just want to talk about the American politics. They want to look at the world through the upside down funnel of partisanship and politics. Now, we're not naive here. We understand uh, politics stopping at the water's edge has long been dead and was never probably true to start with. That meaning it's one team, one fight once it goes overseas when you come to being Americans. We know that's not the case anymore. But think about what some commentators are doing. Over and over again on social media, we see people talking about, well, at least we have an adult in charge with President Biden, and this is President Biden's moment of leadership. And thank goodness, President, hold on. President Biden does not figure into Vladimir Putin's calculation very much. As we've already detailed, he's coveted this for decades. This is something long in the running. It wouldn't matter who's in the chair, although you could have maybe done some deterrent things. This has been a long-running thing. Multiple presidents of both parties have failed to deter Vladimir Putin and his imperialistic gain. So it's not just uh, President Biden getting credit here, or this is going to be his moment to leadership to shine. No, he figures in Vladimir Putin's figuring very little. If at all, he has the measure of the man. I'm sorry if this upsets you. 
Uh, President Biden has 50 years of book on him of being rather feckless and wrong on foreign policy. He is not respected abroad, no matter what the media might tell you. And Vladimir Putin certainly does not respect him and or fear him. That doesn't mean we're not on the same team here. We need we go to war with the president we have. We fight conflicts with the president we have. We go through trials and tribulations with the president we have. My hope is that President Biden rises the occasion and meets this challenge in a good way, and we will see. But at the same time, going to other places, people are like, well, this wouldn't have happened under President Trump. Oh, well, if President Trump, no, President Trump didn't have a clue what he was doing on foreign policy. Again, I'm sorry if that offends you. That's just an abstract fact. He didn't care about foreign policy. He only intervened and asked and got involved in it to know what was going on when he thought it benefited him. His foreign policy was not coherent. American foreign policy to be effective has to be consistent, have, a, over, have to have a unified vision, has to be cohesive, has to outlast just what's going on in the moment. The current president is not good at that. The former president was horrific at that. And frankly, the presidents before him had their issues as well. This has been a long time coming. But for any pundit that is going to start slamming partisan domestic politics into this situation with Vladimir Putin in Ukraine, they're selling you something. Mark them and pay attention, especially if they're taking up for Vladimir Putin, especially if their talking points go exactly along the lines of Vladimir Putin's of, well, the West provoked us into this. Well, Asking Ukraine to join NATO provoke. No, there's no provocation for taking over a sovereign country. Those are all lies. Don't fall into them. And if they're coming from somebody who has a nice fat contract and a major network in the United States of America, ask yourself what benefit that person sees in siding with the evil Vladimir Putin. Is there money involved or are they a true believer that Vladimir Putin is a force for good? When everybody that has a functional frontal cortex and the least little bit of morals understands that he is not. Ask yourself those questions when you hear them trying to tickle your ears with something. Why is that? Why are they on that side? Why are they on the side of the bad people? And why is it they think that you want to hear them be on that side just to stoke your emotions and your reactions? Turning down the noise, which is the buzzword and the credo of this program goes to things, even important things, like what's going on in the Ukraine. If somebody's trying to get you riled up over Ukraine and convince you that up and down and black and white isn't applying and that Vladimir Putin is the good guy here, you should really, really mark them because they're not a good guy. They're trying to sell you something and they're selling you something that's going to be paid for in blood and treasure and land by the people of Ukraine. And they'll probably do it again at the next crisis in the next faraway land. And you better be careful. Someday we may have a crisis right here at home, close at hand. And those same people that were on the wrong side then will probably be on the wrong side again. Human nature is undefeated. People tell you who they are, believe them. And we have a lot of commentaries on both the left and the right that are telling us a whole lot about who they are by using Vladimir Putin and the crisis in Ukraine. Mark them well, believe them. And make sure we understand the lessons learned about who our media figures are when it really, really matters. More Hertel right after this. I 
welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, going to talk a little education, a very important topic that has been on a lot of people's minds for a lot of different reasons. He's a Young Voices contributor. We're thrilled to have him. Kenneth Shrub, how are you, sir? I'm doing well today. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the time. Uh, here's the thing. The way you've been talking about education and the piece you wrote in Chalkboard Review that we're going to get into, uh, you get to the dirty, sticky, pointy end of the education debate, and that's the part that people don't really want to talk about because they want to talk about nice fancy buzzwords like children and education and learning and growing. Really, a lot of this just comes down to money. And that's what you were writing about in this particular piece, wasn't it? Yes, sir. Right now, we have tons of these buzzwords going around school choice. Nobody's really quite defining that. Does school choice mean charter schools? Does school choice mean vouchers? Does it mean education savings accounts? Uh, People universally support children having better options for education. But when it comes down to how we're going to pay for it, how we're going to prevent massive inflation, the cost of our schools, it seems people don't really have answers. Generally speaking on items like this, I tend to be a freedom guy. I tend to be an all of the above guy. When you start talking about money and funding and educational accounts and things like this, you can't get to all of the above until you deal with the funding issue, because we all know private school is very expensive. Uh, but the cost for public schools is uh, also expensive, although it comes through taxes and stuff. What's a good way to get into this issue where we talk about the money? Because folks just get uncomfortable when you start talking about money and education, don't they? So first you have to realize that the average uh, call, uh, private school K-12 through tuition is a few thousand dollars less than what the average state spends per student. Um, so so there's sort of there is this myth that private school education is significantly more expensive but in reality, on a per people basis, it is more afford- it is much uh, more affordable. How do we get the idea of funding into people's heads? Because we've run into this in other uh, situations is when you start talking about millions of dollars, billions of dollars, stats just gloss people's eyes over. You know, they just they lose track of that. But you can talk about individual stories and all of a sudden you bring them back. When you're talking about something like school choice, when you're talking about school savings account, what's some of the stories we can talk about? Because just quoting the stats and the behemoth that is public education, I think we kind of lose people a little bit. What do you think? Most people understand that the state spends more per child than they tend to pay in taxes as a median family and in, in state tax. So they understand that they are getting a benefit of some kind. But because because of that, that divorce between what they pay in taxes and how much more benefit they receive. Uh, it's hard for people to think about controlling the cost of education because directly it appears like it's not borne by them. So it doesn't really matter how much we put into the public school system because they don't feel like they're directly paying for it. They're paying for a portion of it to be sure. But um, you know, in California, I think the median households state taxes, something like $6,000. Imagine you have two kids, the state spending about, um, I think it's 18,000 a student. Uh, so $36,000 in benefit that you get just from schooling. So if it's if it doesn't feel as much like it's your money, you're not going to want to be as concerned about how how it's going to be how much it's going to cost, how much it's going to be funded, which is why private schools have had to keep costs anything way down. Um, you can't really get there's no massive subsidy for private schools. There's no student loans that I know of uh, for private schools. There are generous financial aid programs at many schools, but but really it's the incentive of parents knowing every every single dollar is their own um, that keeps the cost down. And this is an issue that keeps coming up anytime you talk school choice and we're talking education with Kenneth Shrub from Young Voices today, UC San Diego guy. Um, yes, how do you get past the debate? Because 
there seems to be this wall in a lot of people's mind of anytime you talk funding, that if you have anything other than public school, you're taking money away from the public school. That's the argument that's always raised. And that's not really the case, is it? Because when you talk about things like these education accounts, you talk about private school funding, you just quoted the stats about how the tuition stays down because it has to be competitive by nature. How do we get past that? Because the first argument everybody says is, well, if you have a private school option, it's going to take funding away from the public schools. Not necessarily. Look at look at charter schools. Charter schools are public schools. I think that we have this weird distinction in people's minds between charter and public schools because the left and liberal media have decided to make charter schools an enemy when they've done the most for underrepresented students in underserved areas, uh, far more than many even private schools have. Um, there's a reason that there's waiting lists of thousands of thousands of students for places like Success Academy in New York. These, these places deliver. I would instead maybe perhaps consider calling traditional public schools union schools and charter schools are to remain, remain charter schools. They're all public schools. But, but we need these distinctions in people's minds between, this is a needless distinction in people's minds between these charter schools, which, which give you plenty of choice and leeway. They can have their own hiring and firing practices. They're not dominated by the unions. They're student first, not uh, educator first. Yeah, we're talking to Kenneth Shrub. I'm glad you bring that up because I wanted to ask you about this. Um, in some states, I know in North Carolina, the fastest growing charter school is actually the state-sanctioned online academy. There's a lot of schools like art schools and specialty schools and career vocational schools that are starting to find online or hybrid models, and they are looking towards the charter school models and the private school models to do that. Is some of this that we're just going to have to realize that with technology and with students having more options and more input through technology that our idea of education just needs to expand in general, even beyond just, like you said, a union school or a traditional K through 12 school system? To be honest, I find the idea of mostly online school to be sort of dystopian hellscape. I don't want kids learning in the metaverse, in like in in pot in the metaverse, not experiencing, you know, school, school, schoolyard roughhousing, not playing sports during recess with their friends, not chit-chatting in the back of class, but having to pay attention and pass at the same time, you know, developing socially. This this online online school system it works it works for some people but in reality it's probably holding back children's development it's fine as an option but we need to figure out how to bring back in person education as much as we can we've seen how much children have been have been affected by just the mask mandates and closing of schools we have lobbed off maybe in one entire uh, you know perhaps 15, 30 IQ points off of kids' development in the, in the last couple of years. Now, we might catch that up, but, but that's the difference between somebody who has graduated from college and somebody who hasn't uh, graduated from high school, typically in the intelligence distribution, simply because we've cut them off from early essential education. Yeah, to your point, I know uh, some colleagues of me, mine, like M. Carpenter, they've talked about uh, the last full school year that we have data now that students going into this year, some of them are a year to two years of school behind where they are right now. Right. Um, that's just a fact of life because of the pandemic going forward. Would something like uh, education accounts, like more school choice, would this be an option for parents to say, okay, the school system, there's no way they're going to catch up if I don't get them in a better educational system. Is that going to be a good window to start talking about some of these issues, do you think? Well, that's that's been why people are talking about these issues. Parents parents do want to have choices for their kids other than these union schools that are, have remained shut down because the administrators and teachers uh, are 
you know, have, have concerns. Some might have valid concerns. Some might not about, about going back to work in person with these students. Parents want what's best for their children and their children not going to school and having online education just isn't a choice. Talking to Kenneth Shrepp, uh, when you wrote about it in the piece, you talked about harmful systemic effects while expanding educational opportunities. Educational reform advocates need to recognize this. What did you mean exactly by that? Because when you start saying things like systemic, people get in their mind, you know, bad things like conspiracy theories and top down kind of stuff. So what did you mean by systematic there? So when I was what I was specifically talking about in that paragraph was that improving school choice is very important. But if you universally provide education savings accounts, you universally give everybody, as in the state of California, where they're looking at funding you about $14,000 a year per student, no matter what your income level, the result is, according to several studies that have been done, uh, dramatically increased private school tuition without significantly expanding, expanding enrollment in private schools because you have so many more dollars chasing what is the same number of seats, right? Let's say that you have a successful private school where you're charging people $12,000 a year in tuition. Um, suddenly, and, and you're completely full, you have a, you have a good mix of kids on financial aid. Um, I mean, you, tr- you try to do your best, but that you have you still have way more applicants than you have spots. So you can you can actually you are you already already are raising your tuition a little bit every year. Now let's say you learn of a state program where every single family, even these families making two, you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, they're going to immediately be getting fourteen thousand dollars a year. Why would you not raise your tuition fourteen thousand dollars? In fact, those checks are going to make it so that people can more and more and more people can try to afford to go to your school which means you'll have even more applicants. So you'll have a much larger pool and far more money chasing the same number of spots. You, you are going to raise your prices. This has happened every single place that this has been attempted. The wider the uh, number of children who are given these education savings accounts past, past low and middle income families, the more of, of this unfair uh, effect that you see where Tuition skyrockets even further out of control, and more children from underserved areas are left with the same terrible educational opportunities. Yeah, we're talking to Kenneth Shrepp. We're right back to where we started with the money stuff. When we come back on Hartel, we're going to start digging in to these educational accounts. A better idea uh, is universal, the good and the bad of that. Uh, more education with Kenneth Shrepp when we come back on Hartel right after this. Welcome back. We're still talking to Kenneth Shrupp about education and ESAs. Okay, you talked about some of the problems with doing a universal education savings account, how that would um, kind of make the money move around in ways that may not be equitable. What do you think is a good way to try to implement these on a policy level? Should they be like a state level thing? Should it be a federal thing? Uh, How do you see a good process if the universal isn't the perfect method? What would be a better way to go about this? I think it should be available to students in the worst performing school districts in the country, uh, limited to say the bottom, oh, the, the bottom quartile uh, or, bo- or bottom third of the worst performing school districts. It, I would probably would not want to administer this at a federal level. Um, it probably due to funding, most, most education funding being from the state, this is probably best done at the state level where, where you allow people who are just stuck and assigned to these 
terrible district union schools where they have no chance of even graduating high school uh, to, to be given these vouchers to attend private school. Uh, there is something I do want to bring up um, that really speaks to why universal education savings accounts are such a bad idea. And I think we really need to look at the cost of college tuition. Believe it or not, uh, college tuition used to be rise, rising slower than or in line with inflation up until uh, um, Linda B. Johnson had the idea of allowing for uh, students to of lower and middle low low and lower middle income to be able to get these loans to attend college uh, so that they could attend college full time, graduate faster, get a, we, we'd have a better knowledge workforce. Uh, what happened was private school tuition went up faster than inflation. Public school tuition did not because we were pouring money into building more and more colleges. Uh, and and you were able to get many more of these students into higher higher and private schools that they can now afford thanks to these loans. Now let's fast forward to the Carter administration. Come the Carter administration, um, the baby boom is over, lots of empty seats in colleges. They decide to expand these federal student loan programs to people of all incomes. What happens at that moment, you create unlimited demand for a limited number of spots, right? Sure, people start new colleges, but they're starting it. It doesn't, you know, it almost doesn't matter how many schools you start if you go from people are paying it for themselves, if they're from the upper and upper middle class, to anybody can pay any amount of money to go to nearly any school. That's that's when you have inflation and waste go out of control, even at the private schools where they had they previously had to keep costs down. The exact same thing is going to happen with with private school, private K through 12 schools. If we go from tar- from targeted univer- targeted education savings accounts, universal education savings accounts. Why do we seem to not understand that education is one of those things that throwing money at it just does not work? And in fact, throwing money at it makes it worse. We've got you just you just mentioned almost 60 years of history right there. And we've got all the data in the world. We're adding this massive bureaucratic level to the K through 12 education system. You just mentioned higher eds getting more and more expensive, grossly um, not tethered to how the rest of costs in life in America is right now. Why can't we just get that simple thing through our heads? Like, look, this is not a money problem. In fact, the money's actually making a lot of this worse. So the, the big problem is that I think it's driven now by an ideological desire to unchain children from public schools, regardless of cost. In the, la- in the last decade, we've had uh, a change in, in conservative and libertarian circles from seeing government as something not only to be limited, but to, to be used to your own ends and expanded when appropriate, if the ends justify the means. I, I also think that there may be funding from organizations of private schools hoping for this massive subsidy and massive increase, you know this, or you might even have people just trying to buy votes. I don't know what it is, but it's certainly not good. And people who are researchers who earnestly believe that the cost of K through twelve education is not going to skyrocket because we're going to have a short to temporary supply shock, are not looking at the state of the labor market in the United States and looking at what happened with private college tuition once you made uh, federal student loans available to anyone and at an unlimited amount. I mean, look, we have people, we have, we have states like I think New Mexico is sending in the National Guard to serve as, uh, as, teach, as substitute teachers because there just aren't enough teachers. Like what do you, what, what do you think is going to happen 
when we start giving everybody money for, to start to start new schools. We don't have enough teachers. We we simply can't do this. Is that a effect of this being um, a backward system right now? Theoretically, you would want your teachers to be kind of a self-sustaining thing where you have people going through the education system and they love it so much and then they get inspired by their teachers that, hey, I want to go be a teacher. I love teachers. Both of my parents were public school teachers for the entirety of their careers. Um, but because of the way the college system is set up, it, it would be hard for educators just to have four years of college and then go back into the school system. We're not seeing that now because they got to have their national certifications. A lot of them want to have a, an advanced degree to get a better paycheck to move on. They want the auxiliary things. We've almost built an education system that precludes getting teachers in the classrooms in an, in an effective method. And that just goes right back to this money problem once again, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, the moment that we divorced, uh, you know, what you study from what you're from how you're going to pay for what you study and what you're going to go do with that beyond beyond merit i mean obviously a financial aid programs and colleges that help very very exceptionally talented students study study history or literature study 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 the humanities or social sciences because because these these are some amazing people but now that we've given everybody this money we have 40% of college graduates in America working a job that doesn't require a college degree. Meanwhile, we can't get enough teachers because you need to have a master's to get to make anywhere north of like $35,000 a year starting salary. Uh, These teachers have to have a bachelor's degree, then they have to get these certifications. It's a never ending process. And it's very hard to be a teacher now. Yeah. And uh, we could talk on the flip side of that some other time about how now we've got a bunch of jobs that need master's degrees that probably shouldn't, because that's a big problem as well. All right. You opened up, you talked about it. Uh, You're obviously not against school choice. You're a school choice guy. You look at these issues and study it. But when you wrote this piece for the chalkboard review, some of the school choice folks actually gave you a little bit of pushback on this, thinking maybe you were taking a run at the idea of savings accounts and school choice issues. Um, let me just give you the platform and respond to some of that. How did that kind of criticism land with you and how would you answer it? So, uh, you know, they took my article, which is literally titled means tested education savings accounts, best promote school choice. I mean, I personally also really support charter schools. I think charter schools have worked out fantastically as a solution. I'm not opposed to charter schools either, but simply trying to say that we shouldn't be giving you know, households at the top of the income distribution, or even those who live in suburbs with, with great public schools and, you know, families in the up, more upper middle class part of the income distribution, just fourteen fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 checks. They, they thought, they thought I was saying that the entire project of getting children out of public schools, uh, traditional public schools is uh, a waste of time. I, I don't agree with that. I, I true, I want as many children to have as many options as possible, but we don't have unlimited money and just throwing money at the problem is just going to make it worse. We've seen it happen time after time. Yeah, I think um, we ran into this a little bit during the pandemic where they're like, well, everybody should homeschool their kids. Like, well, no, that's not, there's no way people can do that. There's just, you know, you got to be a certain kind of person to do sort of things like that. Is a lot of this education debate, we just want to do these broad brush, one quick fix buzzword policies. And the truth is that this really needs to be a lot of local with some support at the state and federal level. And there's just so much nuance to this. And that just doesn't really fit the environment we're trying to discuss education in right now, does it? So and here's a perspective, I think, that that many, that many of these people going for universal uh, 
ESAs might have. You know, you, you look at the effects of the public school t- system being entirely captured by interests that are trying to destroy their way of life. Um, and they're thinking regardless of cost, we have to get as many children out of, of the traditional public school system as possible, even if that means creating a new monster in the private school system where you have more waste, more mess, sky, skyrocketing tuition, as long as it means kids can get out. Because I think their vision is, is for, um, you know, people to start publishing. One of the, one of the things is ESA advocates promote is not having, not allowing money to be spent on non-accredited schools. Because I think some of the ideas that if this money is available, people are going to create curriculums that are more, uh, that revolve more around their vision for what a good life, what the good life is, what a good citizen should learn. Uh, enough, and that, and that starts off online. Those children online form up into pods. Those pods over time form into schools. And eventually you have most students in private schools and, and the public schools entirely destroyed, um, not destroyed, but subsumed. Um, that's, that's a fine vision, but I don't see why we need to have all of this government money following it. He's kind of shrub. We've been dealing with education, kind of deep diving into this stuff, education accounts and so forth. Uh, one thing's for sure, education is going to continue to be a hot button issue. We just saw it in the Virginia election. We're going to see it in this midterm election, I think, coming off the pandemic. So we're going to be talking more and more about it. So I appreciate your time today. Let folks know where they can find your writing and where they can find you online and follow you, my friend. Honestly, best way, best way to keep up with my writing and keep find me online is to follow me on Twitter. Uh, just search my name, Kenneth Shrupp, K-E-N-N-E-T-H, S-C-H-R-U-P-P, and I'll be, definitely be the first to show up. Yep, and uh, we put it down there in that little lower third graphic right to his right as if you're watching on the YouTube channel or on the Facebook page. Uh, Kenneth Shrupp, thank you so much for the time today going through an in-depth issue, but we got to because I think this is one of the most buzzwordy issues we have, but it really touches so much of our society. We need to dig into it more, and I appreciate your thoughts and time on it. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, in other news going on around the world, uh, President Donald Trump, President 45, uh, he's back on social media. He very famously got the boot from Twitter and other platforms uh, surrounding the January 6th stuff. But his long-promised social media platform, Truth Social, rolled out for President's Day. Kind of <laughs> uh, me writing in ordinary dash times. Um, start out how you intend to carry on, the old saying goes. But this is true social we're talking about here, and their intent to create their own echo chamber probably doesn't apply to that bit of wisdom from the independent former U.S. President Donald Trump's new social media platform, True Social, has gone live and is available for download on the Apple App Store. However, many users complained on Twitter. There's a little bit of irony of a huge wait list to join the portal. This is quoting from The Independent. After being ousted from social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, in January of 2021, the former U.S. president took matters into his own hands and announced last October that he planned to launch his own platform. The app, set to go live on 21 February to coincide with President's Day, was open to hundreds of testers on Friday ahead of the expected launch. Mr. Trump's eldest son, Donald Trump Jr., shared a screenshot saying, Get ready, your favorite president. We'll see you soon. 
users took to Twitter to share once again, users took to Twitter to share their experiences with the app, with many noting they were on a wait list to sign up due to quote massive demand. Apple has also reportedly begun sending notification alerts to users that the app is available for download. Some users also complained that they have been unable to register an account after downloading the app. The former president's new media and technology venture, Trump Media and Technology Group, TMTG, which is behind the development of the app, has pledged to deliver a, quote, engaging and censorship-free experience on the platform. It may be seen whether the app's goal of freedom of expression can coexist with Apple and Google's App Store. That's from The Independent. This is now me writing in Ordinary-Times.com. Yesterday, every time a MAGA-friendly, quote, alternative social media platform comes and goes, the same scenario occurs. Big jump in downloads and subscriptions, then a rapid stall as those folks congregate, then long, slow decline that that same group of the same folks gradually get tired of each other the same platform, whatever, and gravitate back to the big three of Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter until the next next big thing. Trump's name attached will give True Social a little bit more juice with the faithful, but the same problem will occur again, and we have history and data to prove it. These are not revolutions or pushing the social media envelope. They are the same group of people running from one thing to the other as a herd, not staying past the initial thrill because, lo and behold, It's the same people over and over again. The tell here is that they have to run to Twitter to complain about the new venture, announce how well it is doing, how it is trending on Twitter, and declare that for the umpteenth time how they are leaving, and this time they really super double mean it. Mostly, True Social will be yet another burn bright, fade quickly journey for the Trump faithful to make a pilgrimage, state the catechism of buzzwords and then slowly lose interest and come back to where the rest of the world does social media because they miss it. Lather, rinse, and repeat. If nothing else, it will be an interesting window into the further decline of the Trump brand going forward, and we will finally end the long national nightmare of not having Donald J. Trump on social media. You don't even have to get on true social for that. All the important ones, or at least trend-worthy ones, will be all over your Twitter and Facebook feeds, which is where they're going to be arguing about it. And so it goes. It's me writing in ordinary-times.com. It's, it's not that I'm against people having new platforms. It's just we've seen this over and over again. We've got the data. They'll have a big jump initially, then it plateaus, then it trails off because it's the same people over and over again. They miss the rest of the world. Turns out echo chambers are boring. And as for that anti-censorship thing, uh, at some point, they have to censor something. They have to have some rules. Otherwise, it would be just chaos and an unusable platform. The other thing is the reason... Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and other places have armies of engineers working for them is it takes a massive amount of infrastructure to maintain a social media network. It does not appear that they have a massive amount of infrastructure to support this social media network, which means they will have problems with it. And every time they have problems with it, they'll bleed users back to the social media networks that work. Also, to make a social media network really work, you got to have a good guy and a bad guy. You have an echo chamber where everybody agrees. They'll just start nitpicking each other. It'll descend into chaos quickly. They will miss having folks like mainstream media and those evil, wicked left people to fight against or those squishy rhinos from the right, whatever the case may be. They're going to need to come back and find them. So call me skeptical about true social. It's built to be an echo chamber. And the shelf life on that is going to be very, very short. 
We will see if I'm wrong. I'll come on and admit it. More Herd Tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. You know we always try to end on a happy note or something a little bit more uplifting, especially on a very heavy news day like today was. Let's go out to Kansas City, Missouri, uh, Fox 4 kc.com for more than three decades one kansas city man has spent his life giving others opportunity Clyde mcqueen's contributions to the city go well beyond his words his actions have made the difference for tens of thousands of people right here in kansas city that is the secret ingredient to kansas city at least as success has always been branded around working together as a unit because you can never do all this stuff by yourself said mcqueen President and CEO of Full Employment Council. He has made a difference in the community for 35 years, but always remained humble, never made things about him or what he can get out of it. He focused on an idea that with a lot of hard work, getting done what needs to be done is always possible. He's like one of those people that's never tried, always works, no works longer than anyone we know, and he is committed to make sure that there are resources brought to the area, said Rohina Berman. In more than the three decades of service to Kansas City, McQueen has brought in more than $200 million in grants and donations. In his position as president and CEO of the Full Employment Council, he and his team have helped more than 20,000 people a year. Quoting McQueen here, he said, We know that when a person does better, their families do better, and it creates a better environment around them. McQueen and his organization serve five counties in Missouri. The man himself was honored locally, statewide, and in two separate honors. From the U.S. House of Representatives, it's not just a job, he said. It's a career position that helps you have benefits for your family, has wages for your family, and helps you to be a better person for the future generations that follow you, he said. He assures Fox 4 that the work will continue and that the ability to help people will always keep him coming back. Great story out of Kansas City, man. $200 million in grants he's found. 20,000 people helped. All in his community still at it. Good for you, Mr. McQueen. Well done. I'll do it for Herd Tell. However, you're watching on YouTube or listening on any of the podcasting platforms or on Big Talker Networks, we sure appreciate you. Uh, we're going to continue to try to turn down the noise of the news cycle. Things are getting crazy out there. Uh, worldwide foreign policy, of course, Russia is going to dominate, dominated the show today. Going to be talking a lot about that in the future. We're also going to keep our eye on the ball on domestic things, things that affect us uh, more directly. A lot going on. We're going to try to balance it as best we can, bring you the best information we can. Whatever platform you're watching or listening on, please make sure you're subscribed. That way you don't miss out every single weekday. Each new episode of Herd Tell also means the Good Talk playlist. Those are the interview portions. They come out every afternoon. You don't want to miss any of those. Also, you'll hear us say from time to time that a guest is recurring or has been on before. You can always go back, look at them before. And we try to cover stories more than once when they're important or if they change. You can go back and check us, make sure we're covering stories the way they need to be covered. And then you can interact with us. Uh, show at gmail.com, at show on the Twitter. You can also find my Twitter handle and the social media for our guests in the lower third graphic. Reach out, support us, follow them. We'd sure appreciate it. However you decide to interact with us, we'd sure like to hear about it. You can also leave a comment in the YouTube comments, or you can leave a rating on almost all the podcasting platforms. We'd love to hear from you. We will respond to you. We've actually done segments on the show based off feedback. People have asked us to cover things. 
People have wanted to know why we cover things or sometimes why we aren't covering something. Sometimes we let a story breathe a little bit. Whatever the case may be, we'd love to hear from you. Keep your bearing. Be nice. We might even put it on the show. So that'll be it for today. A lot going on in the world. We'll be right back here tomorrow on Hertel. So wherever you and yours are, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. Keep your bearing, folks. It's going to be a rough ride for a few days, but we will get through it. This too will pass. And we'll see you tomorrow on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.